Amen. You may be seated. Take your Bibles this morning and turn with me, if you would, to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, as we continue our study, we'll be looking at Philippians 1, verses 21 through 26. And as you're turning there, can I just give you a, a personal word? I hadn't planned on saying this, but as I was singing this morning and fellowshipping with you and praying, I just was uh, really overwhelmed with uh, how thankful I am to be here. God has really given me, in this short time, a real love for you. You have loved me well already. You have loved our family well, not only from the gifts that you gave us when we first came here, but the way you have consistently been an encouragement to us, the way you've taken care of our children. So I'm really grateful for you. So thank you for the way in which you have loved us and welcomed us. Uh, we're just a couple of months in. We, people keep asking us if we're settled. We feel home. And we're really grateful to God, and we really love you and are glad to be here. So thank you so much for the way in which you've loved us. Have you ever heard someone say about someone else, they're so heavenly-minded, they're no earthly good? You've heard that, haven't you? What they mean by that is there, there do seem to be people who love Bible studies, and they love prayer meetings, and they love thinking deeply about the things of the Lord, and they love their time with the Lord, and they're always wanting more of these type of things, but they don't seem to be very effective in the kingdom. In other words, they're thinking a lot and studying a lot and maybe even praying a lot, but they don't seem to be doing much ministry. So although they're heavenly-minded, they're just not much good. These people often care a lot about Christ, it seems, and care a lot about maybe even the church, but don't seem to be in love with people. They're not passionate about the Great Commission and sharing the gospel, and even if they might be passionate about it in their words, they are not in their actions. And so we look at them and we say, boy, I tell you, they have this great appearance, but the truth is they're so heavenly-minded, they're just no earthly good. Now, I, I understand where that comes from, and I understand the kind of people that we're referring to. I'm just not convinced that's actually possible. It, it doesn't seem to me at all possible that you would be so heavenly-minded that you would be no earthly good because to be heavenly-minded is to be God-minded. It is to be Christ-minded. It means that you are consumed with God. You are concerned with God. You love God and you long for God. And it just seems to me that if you are consumed with God and if you long for God and you love for God, you're also going to end up loving the things God loves. And so although I understand what is meant by that, it, it seems to me that the person who is the most earthly good is the most heavenly-minded. C.S. Lewis tells us our problem is not that we're too heavenly-minded. We're not heavenly-minded enough. I mean, who is more heavenly-minded than Jesus? He walked in constant communion with the Father. He was always separating himself from the disciples early in the morning to pray. He did nothing without the initiative of the Father, constantly heavenly-minded. But could have anybody have been more earthly good than Jesus Christ? The truth is, the more you fall in love with God, the more you fall in love with the things God loves. The more you find your heart captured by God, the more, I would say, you find yourself captured with what God is passionate about. Let me say it this way. The more you fall in love with God, the more you're going to fall in love with ministry to people. 
There are these inseparable commands of loving God and loving people. So inseparable that when Jesus was asked what's the one greatest commandment, he couldn't give one. It's the whole point of 1 John, that if you say you love God, you must also love people. If you are so heavenly minded that you are passionately in love with God, you will also be earthly minded and be passionately in love with people. I think Philippians 1 is a great example of this. This heavenly mindedness that leads to a Christ-centeredness and people-focused. I mean, Paul is certainly heavenly minded. He's in prison. He's longing to be with the Lord. But he's pulled in two different, different directions. I want you to think about it like this. Here is Paul sitting in a Roman prison. He's being pulled upward because he desires to depart and be with Christ. So he feels in his heart this this real pull. He wants to be with Christ, yet he feels pulled downward because he loves the Philippians. He loves God. He loves the Philippians. And that's what's causing him in this moment here of personal biography to to share this tension that he feels. And he expresses it in Philippians 1, verses 21 through 26. Let me read that for us. If you're at Philippians 1, say amen. 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 Verse 21. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. Verse 26, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Look at those words there, hard pressed in verse 23. I'm hard pressed. I'm hard pressed between the two. What is the two? Between heaven and earth. Between my love and desire for God and my love and desire for you, Paul feels torn. I mean, the word hard-pressed there literally means to be distressed or perplexed. He's really feeling inside of his soul a real perplexity. Where do I want to be? I I don't know. I'm torn between the two. I would love to depart and be with Christ, yet I know you and I love you and I long to be with you. But yet it's that perplexity, it's that hard-pressed feeling that is so helpful for us. Because Paul tells us that he's writing this, not just for our information, because he tells us he's writing for our example in chapter 3, that we should follow in his steps as he's following the Lord, so we should follow him. And what a great example of the tension that every single believer should feel In this love for Christ and desire to be with him, yet this love for people and desire to be with them. And I think the tension gives us a really important point, which is the one point we're going to flesh out this morning, which is simply this. Listen carefully. When Christ is the center of your life, people are the focus of your life. Write that down. When Christ is the center of your life, People are the focus of your life. And one of the greatest tests of whether you are centered on Christ or not 
is the degree to which you care about people. The more you are centered on Christ, you could say the more heavenly minded you are, the more you are centered and focused on people, the more earthly good you are. And so I want to take these two truths together because both of them are given, one in verses 21 through 23 and the other in 24 through 26, and I want to to see these separate and then bring them together. So the first one is this, first exhortation, make Christ the center of your life. Write that down, that's verses 21 through 23. Like Paul, make Christ the center of your life. Now, you might remember, we ended last week with verse 21. We had to, because uh, Paul was talking about his great ambition in life is to magnify Christ. He wanted his, his life to make Christ known. And the reason that that was his ambition is because of verse 21. It starts with four, giving us the reason for why he said what he previously said. And the reason is this, uh, because for me, to live is Christ. I mean, the reason my ambition is to magnify Christ is because I exist for Christ. There's nothing I want more than Christ. So we had to end with verse 21, but we have to begin this week with 21 because everything he says in verses 22, 23, 24, 25, and 26 flows exactly out of this tension of living and dying. And it is really here that we learn how we get a greater heart and love for people. We do that by making Christ the center of our life. Now look at verse 21. I told you last week, I'll give you by way of reminder, that it is a confusing verse. And although we love to say that this is a wonderful verse and many people say it's their life verse, it it does seem to be a bit confusing. And in the Greek language, it's even more confusing because there's no verbs. We say, for to me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. In the Greek, it says this, to me... To live, Christ. To die, gain. And I understand why we insert the verbs, because it really wouldn't make much sense without them. Yet at the same time, I understand and believe in the inspiration of Scripture and have to believe that God wanted there to be a verb there. He could have told Paul to put a verb there. And he didn't tell him to put a verb there. And really, the lack of verb is what makes it so powerful. The fact that what Paul is saying is this. Well, to me, life Christ. One word defines Paul's life. Christ. From beginning to end, from morning to evening, I am all about Jesus Christ. Christ is life to me. There's nothing I want, nothing I desire, nothing I pursue more than Jesus Christ. Christ is life to me. And because of that, he then goes on to say that death is gain. Our family has been spending some time in the Gospel of John before the kids go to school in the morning. I don't want you to think I'm super spiritual. We just try to read a little portion of John and discuss it in the midst of uh, peanut butter, oatmeal squares, and Nutella, and everything else that's being flown around our house, and in the midst of a two-year-old stealing the girl's breakfast, and it's a lot of drama. So it's not like super, you know, focused and spiritual. But we do try to read a little bit, and we're going through the Gospel of John. I've just been kind of freshly amazed by the emphasis on Jesus as life in the Gospel of John. No one talks to us more about this than John seems to. He says in John 1, verse 4, In Jesus was life, and the life was the light of men. 
The irony of John 1 is that Jesus came to those he'd given life to and they did not even know who he was. John 5.24 says, whoever believes passes from death to life. Before you believe in Jesus Christ, death reigns inside of you. This is the whole point of Romans chapter 5. Romans 5 says that as an unbeliever, death is reigning in you. There is no life outside of Christ. So John 5 says, if you believe in me, you're going to pass from death to life. John 11, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Meaning that Jesus is the one that takes dead people and makes them alive. And the only one who can take dead people and make them alive is Jesus. You say, why, why does Jesus need to make dead people alive? Because Ephesians chapter 2 says that all of us are dead in our trespasses and sins according to the way in which we have walked. Every person is born spiritually dead. No pulse. No heartbeat. You're not just hanging on and need resuscitation. We are born spiritually dead. You have no spiritual life this morning unless you have trusted in Christ. There is no life outside of Christ. So Jesus says, I'm the resurrection. And it's important to know he's the resurrection and the life. If he's just the life, then we would wonder if he has the ability to take something dead and make it life, but he's the resurrection and life, which means if you don't know Christ this morning, you're spiritually dead. The good news is Jesus is in the business of making dead people alive. He's the life. And then in John 14, he says, I am the way and I am the truth and I am the life. So Jesus invites us to come to him with all of our questions. You know why? Because he's the truth. With all of our confusion, you know why? Because he's the way. With all of our sadness in our soul, why? Because he is the life. And it, it is not just a metaphor, it is actually true that the moment you come to Christ, the very power of God enters into you and he brings you to life. That's why John 17, 3 says, this is eternal life. What is it? That you might know me and the one whom I have sent, Jesus Christ. That is life. Life is knowing Jesus. Outside of knowing Jesus, there is no life at all. This is why it's so sad when you talk to someone about their relationship with Christ. And listen, some of you are going to be feeling this way this morning. I just, I know this is the case. Where you, you kind of want to give your life to Christ because you don't want to go to hell. But you don't want to give up the good life. You, you just... You just feel, and I remember feeling this tension so much in high school. Part of my testimony is getting on my knees as an 11th grader and saying, God, I want to want you. I don't want you, but I want to want you. Can you give me some want for you? And he did. That's a great prayer to pray, by the way. And so it is that, that there is this tension where, yeah, I kind of want to know Jesus, but man, I don't, I don't want to, he's going to make me give up everything. The sad part of that is that what Jesus is offering you is actual life. That all of the things that you love are things that are bringing you into greater death. Romans 5, death is ruling and reigning in you until you come to Christ. There is no life outside of Christ. And by the way, this is not simply the entrance, the way in which we come to Christ. The life with Christ is a constant reminder of believing by faith that when I sin, I'm entering into death, and when I walk with Jesus, I'm receiving more life. 
Listen, when you're tempted to sin, just remind yourself that sinning is going back into slavery, going back living in the life of death, but to say yes to Christ in the moment of temptation is to receive more and more life. Psalm 16 says that in his presence is fullness of joy and in his right hand are pleasures forever. And the reality is that when we walk with Jesus, we get a little taste of pleasure. We get a little taste of joy. We will not understand the fullness of it until heaven, but having faith in Jesus is believing. Jesus, I believe that you're the life and the only life is to walk with you. So by faith, I'm gonna say no to this and enter into a life with you. And if you do that by faith, you will receive, for the first time, life. And as you continue to walk by faith, moment by moment, more life, more life, more life, more life. There is eternal amounts of life God wants to breathe into you if, by faith, you choose to make him the center of your life. I think about John 6. I love this moment when Jesus makes some rather hard statements, and a bunch of his disciples leave him. Which is interesting as a pastor, isn't it, when we feel so tempted to just say whatever we need to say in order to get more people to stay, when the reality is Jesus just said what was true, and they left, and he didn't beg them to stay, he just preached the truth, and if they had ears to hear, they heard it and stayed, and if they didn't, they left. Jesus did not see overly concerned. What he did, though, is he turned to his disciples and said, are you going to leave too? Here's Peter's response. Where would we go? You have the words of life. Peter... Peter was a bit of an idiot. He missed a lot of things. But he knew enough to know this. I've I've got no other place to go. Because you have life, and even though, God, I do not understand you fully, and I do not understand what you just said about drinking and eating your flesh, I still know this, you alone have life, so where else am I going to go? That's what it means to walk by faith. I don't understand, but I do believe that only you have life, so step by step, I will walk with you with the hope of experiencing your life. So, So as you get your life centered on Christ, you experience more life. Now, here's what happens, and this is the, the second part of verse 21, something very strange happens as you grow in your love for Christ. The more Christ becomes the center of your life, the more you have a desire for heaven. Because listen, I want want you to understand this right here. When you have a a great spiritual moment, you get up in the morning, you read your Bible, and God speaks to you, and and you know what this is like. You kind of just feel like you've come to life, and it's just a wonderful moment, and sometimes it lasts for a while, sometimes it lasts until someone says something smart aleck to you, and in 30 seconds, you've lost it, right? But there's these little moments of joy that we get. There's these little moments of life, and they're fleeting. Do you know, listen, every one of those is a taste of heaven? Because in heaven, that's what we get forever. Because there's no more sin, and there's no more smart alecks, and there's no more stuff that's distracting us. There's no more traffic. There's no more complaining church members. I'm just saying the things that help me. There's, <laughs> there's also no more goofy pastors, too. It's just all Jesus. This is all, it's good for all of us. Listen, there's no more of that stuff. So you know what heaven is? It's just constant, continual, uninterrupted communion with God, which is full life. And, and we have this foretaste of glory divine, 
And then we start longing for more. You say, God, I want more of that. I, I want to experience more of that fullness. And we have this increased desire for the Lord until we come to that moment, as the hymn says, the things of this world grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. That's, that's what Paul's struggling with. Listen, I, I've gotten so centered on Christ, and I think particularly as he has been forced to be in prison had more communion with Christ. And by the way, sometimes God will force us into a moment when all we can do is have communion with Christ. Paul's experiencing that, and all of a sudden, he's starting to be able to see, listen, life is all about Christ, but dying would be gain. He says, if I live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose I cannot tell. Look at verse 23. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ. Why? Because he wants more of the fullness of an encounter with God. For that's far better. It's not just a little bit better. Like life in heaven is not just a little bit better. It's far better. And I want to be with Christ. Now there's only two reasons I can think Paul would say this. That I'd rather just die and be with Christ. There's only two options. First of all, it could be that he just hates life. I mean, he's been in prison multiple times. Read the book of Acts. This man suffered greatly. Everywhere he went, he was stoned, thrown out, and then often thrown into prison. His life was not easy. He was going through a lot of difficult things right now. So it could be that he's depressed, he's discouraged, he's defeated, he's tired. And in attempts to escape reality, which is the saddest thing that some people often do, they would take their lives in order to escape reality, and he just doesn't want to live anymore. That's one option. Or the other option is this. He doesn't hate life. He loves life. He's gotten a taste of real life, and he wants more of it. He says, man, I, I get a little taste of real life, and then world life comes back and then I get another taste of real life and then worldly life comes back and I just want more of this real life and could it be that what he was longing for is not less life but more and he knew that the way you get more life and fullness of life is in heaven now Paul knows that God is the one who ordains our days he is the one that determined when you live and he is the only one that determines when you are to die no one has the right to take their own life. We believe God is working all things out in the counsel of his will and even in our darkest, most discouraging and defeating moments when we feel like everyone else would be better off if we were not here, we trust God's providence and let him take us home when he's ready. But yet Paul is, is tense here. He loves life and he believes that death is gain because what does he gain? He gains more life to tell you how thankful I am for this. I, I, just, I just returned from four days at MD Anderson in Houston. Millions of square feet, tens of thousands of employees that have literally given their life to eliminate cancer. The MD Anderson logo is the word cancer with a red line through it. And I, I'm sitting there in a waiting room uh, for 12 hours waiting for my dad to get out of surgery and watching every else, one else that is there. And I tell you what, you sit there and here's, here's what you think. How does anyone do this without Jesus? And I'm not using Jesus as a crutch. I'm just saying, I, I don't know how anyone does this without Jesus. Because here's, here's what I'm thinking. I'm thinking I want my father to live. But if he dies, that's a win. Like that's a win-win. I mean, he will be more alive in his death than he ever was in his earthly life. So... 
although we would grieve and grieve deeply, as 1 Corinthians 15 says, we do not grieve as those who do not hope, have hope. So there is a, a grief in death, but an awareness that death is simply the entrance into greater life. That's what Paul is saying. Death is gain. Why? Because it is the gain of more of what I want most. This is the reason we celebrate Easter in a few weeks. Because death no longer has victory over us. It no longer wins. The greatest tool the enemy has is death. And yet we as believers laugh in the face of death because death never wins for a believer. That which, that which the enemy thinks is his greatest victory is actually his greatest defeat. Because in death, the power of the resurrection reigns over death and we win in death. Man, I love that, and I love preaching that because I want the enemy to hear that, that you do not win in death, you lose in death. We gain in death. So Paul says, death, where is your victory and where is your sting? And the truth is, is that when Christ is the center of your life, then you begin to long for heaven because there is more full life. But listen to this, the other side is true. When earthly things are the center of your life, then death is it. Like, that's the most terrifying thing in the world. I will never forget sitting in my office about three years ago and having a lady come to me who was just diagnosed with a terminal illness. And she said this to me. She said, Pastor, I'm terrified of dying because everything I love is here. And my response was, well, then, ma'am, you need to come to know Jesus. I understand she didn't want to lose her grandchildren. She didn't want to leave. But if everything you love is here, you don't know Jesus. I mean, I, I think about if God were to take me now and how that makes me grieve at the thought of not seeing my children grow up and all of those things. Yet at the same time, how I long to be done with sin and suffering and experience the fullness of life in Jesus. So the more that we center our life on Christ, moment by moment, day by day, the more we experience his life. So my plea to you from this first point is this, receive the life of Jesus and keep pursuing it. Moment by moment, say no to sin, say yes to Christ, no to sin, yes to Christ, and you'll experience more and more and more of life. It is good, amen? So make Christ the center of your life. But the other side of that is this, Make people the focus of your life. That's the other side. Write that down. Make Christ the center of your life. So I'm pleading with you to be centered on Christ. This is practical. By the way, he says, for me to live is Christ, which I could preach a whole sermon on this, shows that Christianity is practical. It's about life. For me to live is Christ. For me to die is gain. So I'm, I'm, I'm pleading with you to make Christ the center. Moment by moment, keep bringing yourself back to Christ. And I believe in doing that, people will then become the focus of your life. So think about it this way. The more your heart gets centered on Christ, the more your eyes begin to see people. Your eyes stop looking inward, which, which I believe the people that we think are too heavenly minded to be earthly good are not too heavenly minded to be earthly good. They're too self minded to be earthly good. Always, they're running from something. They, they have fear of man, there's something. So their eyes are inward, not really upward. 
The truth is what happens is that when God becomes center, our eyes begin to change and we begin to see things differently. So the heart centered, the eyes focused on people. So this is exactly where he goes with this. He says, if I'm to live in the flesh, verse 22, look at it, that means fruitful labor for me. I, I, I love that. I, I've been really encouraged by that this week. So Paul says, if I live in the flesh, and can I just say here too, Paul knows he's going to live whether he dies or lives. He's going to live. He's just talking about two kinds of life. There is life out of the flesh and life in the flesh. So Paul says, I've got this flesh. God has given it to me. I'm living right now as a believer in the flesh. I've got the life of God in me. I'm living in the flesh. And he says, if I continue to live in the flesh, here's what's going to happen. Two words, fruitful labor. Paul's saying, God's left me alive. He's put life in this flesh so that this flesh might be engaged in fruitful labor. Not just labor, fruitful labor. Now, can I just remind you that labor is not a part of the curse? God had Adam and Eve laboring before sin entered. We were created to work. We were created to work hard. And the truth is, God is a worker, and we magnify God when we work hard. Laziness does not magnify the Lord. Hard work magnifies the Lord. But I got to tell you, I love to work hard. I don't want to just labor, though. I want fruitful labor. I mean, do you feel that? Do you feel like sometimes you're just laboring, 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 and you're wondering if any of it matters? Am I, am I the only one? Can I get an amen that you've, you've felt that before or something? Guys, you've got <laughs> to wake up. Just, I need, you got to, come on. Like, I need to know you're with me. Fruitful labor. I want to work hard, and I want to know that it's bearing fruit. And what I love about Paul, Paul says, if I keep living in the flesh, here's what it's going to mean. Fruitful labor. Now, the question this causes me to ask myself, and I'm going to ask you, if you continue to live in the flesh, what does that mean for you? More hobbies, more money, more vacation, more pursuits? Or does it mean if you keep living in the flesh, like if God gives you one more day of life in the flesh, does that equate to fruitful labor? And I, I want it to. Like I want to make sure that my life in the flesh is for fruitful labor. And that's what he says. If I continue to live life in the flesh, it is for labor. And what is that labor? That's what he goes on to say. Verse 23, I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to part me with Christ, for that's far better. Verse 24, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. So what he's saying is the fruitful labor that God has for me is the fruitful labor of investment in you. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, yet it's more necessary on your account for me to stay. So Paul is saying dying is better for me, but living is better for you. And then he says this, verse 25, look, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. I don't know how to make sense of the beginning of verse 25. I don't know how he's convinced. I don't know if God told him. I don't know if he got some like insider information from a Roman prisoner to saying, hey, listen, I think they're going to let you go. I have no idea why he says this. But somehow Paul feels convinced that this prison sentence is not going to be the end of him. He's not going to die here. He's going to get out. Somehow he knows that. And he says, I'm convinced that I'm going to continue with you all. I'm going to remain and continue. And here it is. Look real big there at verse 25. For, why am I going to continue? Why do I have life in the flesh? For your 
progress, and joy in the faith. There are a few really, really important verses to me as a pastor. This is number one. Um, I feel like my calling as a pastor is for your progress and joy in the faith. It's like God has called me to help you make spiritual progress. I want you to go a little further as a result of this sermon. And I believe that these things go together. As you go further, you get more joy because more life is more joy. More intimacy with Jesus is more joy. What I want to say to you is don't follow the world because there's no life there and there's no joy. Follow Christ and there's life and joy. My calling as your pastor is your progress and joy. I want you to be the most joyful people and that happens as you make progress. So Paul's saying, my fruitful labor is this. I am going to remain with you for your joy and progress. So think about it with me. Life in the flesh means fruitful labor. What is the fruitful labor? Their joy and progress. What does that mean? It means that fruitful labor is all about people. People. Verse 26, so that I want to come to you so that in me, You may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus. My coming to you, my release from prison, and my ministry to you will cause God greater glory. May it be so of me that my ministry to you would cause you greater glory, that you would glory in Christ because of my ministry, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ because of my coming to you again. So let's let's bring it together here and we'll be done. Paul is torn. He's pulled between heaven and he's pulled between earth. But the decision that he believes that God has given to him is the decision that he will gladly delay what is best for him in order to do what is best for them. Now listen, this is where it comes down right here. What we're saying is this, I will gladly not do what is best for me. He says, far better for me to go. I I will gladly delay what's best for me in order to do what's best for you. That's what Paul says. And do you realize that right there in that moment we get to the very heart of the book of Philippians? Because when we get to chapter 2, it's going to give us this model of Christ who delayed what was best for him in order to do what was best for you. He says in chapter 2, if there is any encouragement in Christ any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit and affection and sympathy complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also the interest of others. Where do we learn this? Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So this whole idea of Paul saying, I'm going to delay what's best for me to do what's best for you is exactly the heart of Christ, which is the reason I said to you at the beginning, the more your life is centered on Christ, the more your eyes will be focused on self-sacrificing for people. So I, I plead with you this morning. To center your life on Christ. John 15, I am the vine and you are the branches. So the more that you are connected to Christ, the more that you are abiding in him, the more fruit you're bearing. Brothers and sisters, let me tell you something. We are all about people because we're all about Christ. Like we, we have got to be as a church about people. 
Listen, you exist in the flesh for people. The Great Commission is about people. The church exists for people. This building exists for people. That we gather here and we sing these songs and we hopefully have our hearts stirred by the preaching so that Christ may become greater in us. And the point of a Sunday morning gathering is to get us centered back on Christ so that we might leave here and go after people. People. Like if we miss that, we've missed the whole heart of Christ. And we can think we're as close to Christ as we want to think we are. But we are not close to the heart of Christ if we are not going after people. So I say to you this morning, keep finding life in Christ. If you've never done that, if you've never trusted that Christ is the life, and listen, repented, meaning you're saying no to your old life and getting the life of Christ, can I beg you this morning to start right now today in a new life with Christ? We're going to have a time to respond in just a moment, and this is a time for you to come and say, I I want to know the life of Christ. I, I beg you to do that. But could it be that some of you who have entered into that life of Christ are not consistently walking in that life of Christ? You're saying yes to sin and no to life. Do not let death reign in you when life has been given to you. Confess sin. Say no to sin that you might experience his life. So center your life on Christ and focus your eyes on people. Make the joy and progress of others the heartbeat of your life. And listen, may it be said of every one of us that as long as we live in the flesh, we have our heart centered on Christ, and our eyes focused on people. Amen? Amen. Let's bow our head and close our eyes this morning. With heads bowed and eyes closed, in just a moment, we're going to stand, we're going to sing one more song, and we want